And as many of you know, we are continuing, not only in our series through Mark, but we're continuing in our sermon from last week. I'm just curious, how many of you were not here last week? You were not here last week. Okay, great, that helps me a lot. (laughs) Because last week we had an abbreviated service um, because of a water main issue. Thank the Lord that that was resolved, and we praise God that um, whatever that bill would have been in the hundreds of thousands of dollars, our church did not have to pay for. (laughs) Um, But it did cause for an interesting service last week. For the first time in six years, I think I preached a message that was under 45 minutes long. But may I warn you, there is no water main break today. (laughs) Mark chapter 3. And even though we're only going to be, we've already covered verses 7 through 12, I would have us go ahead and look at chapter 3, verses 7 through 26 together. So Mark chapter 3, 7 through 26. Let's read together. I'll read for us out loud. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Edomia and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons he cast out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. But whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit shall never have forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? 
And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. I want you to journey with me this morning back to the 18th century. Particularly New England. Even more particularly, the town of Northampton, Massachusetts. At the time, this is one of the largest cities in what would later become the United States. The man of the hour is none other than Jonathan Edwards, history or American history's greatest theological mind. The event in particular is called the Great Awakening. Now, maybe you remember this from your history books. It was an event in early colonial history in which entire towns of people were supposedly converting to Jesus and joining the church. In Edwardstown of Northampton, it's one of the largest cities, over half of the population supposedly turned to Christ and then partnered themselves with a local church. It was a unique time. There's a diary entry of the way that people were responding to Edwards' preaching at this time. This particular entry notes... Um, one man's response to a record of Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. You probably read that in high school. Listen to his comments. Before the sermon was done, there was a great moaning and crying out throughout the whole house. What shall I do to be saved? Oh, am I going to hell? Oh, what shall I do for Christ? And Edwards is interrupted by this, and he's asking them to be silent, to be quiet. But the noise increased until Edwards had to stop preaching. He couldn't even finish the sermon. Revival was there. Yet no sooner than one year after that famous sermon, that culminating point of this seemingly awesome revival and response to the gospel, Edwards began to notice that the Great Awakening had taken a dangerous turn. The emotional momentum of the crowds started to dominate the spiritual effect of the revival, leading many people to mistake religious fervor with a real relationship with Jesus. And this bothered Edwards tremendously. So for the next four years, he would write one of his most famous books titled Religious Affections. And it's in this book that he would try to rescue the growing masses from believing themselves to be saved when they were really not. In his book, he argues that Satan desired nothing more than to counterfeit religious experiences so as to lead people into self-delusion. He said that was Satan's strategy. Satan would see a revival, he would see a working of God, and then all of a sudden he would capitalize upon it by trying to produce more and fake results so that people wouldn't be able to recognize what was actually happening from God or from Satan. This was the quote that comes from the book. He says, by this means, he, Satan, brings in even the friends of religion insensibly to themselves to do the work of enemies by destroying religion in a far more effectual manner than open enemies can do. Basically, he's saying that well-meaning friends of religion can lead people to be deceived 
And Satan capitalizes on this. Now, I find it interesting, or impressive even, that the struggle to differentiate between the appropriate response to Jesus and the popular response to Jesus was even going on in the 1730s and 40s. This is not a new problem for us. Indeed, Satan still today brings friends of religion to do the work of enemies in a far more effective way than an open enemy ever could. This was the very concern we discussed last week. The high number of professors of Jesus and the relatively low number of possessors of Jesus. A big difference between the two. And in part, this has all come because of well-intended teaching on how to respond to Jesus. It's kind of mushroomed over the last 100 years in church history where people with good hearts, people who probably know Jesus, have been imprecise about what it means to actually respond to Jesus, thereby leaving people deceived as to whether or not they really belong to Christ. Some of the more faulty responses to Jesus that we have seen in our day have been things like, if you really want to respond to Jesus, you'll just pray this prayer after me. If, if you really want to respond to Jesus, you'll just walk the aisle at the end of the sermon. If you really want to respond to Jesus, you need to be baptized. You know, if you're going to respond to Jesus, you want a relationship with Jesus, you just need to be coming to church on a regular basis. If you want to respond to Jesus, you need to imbibe conservative political values. And you know what the net effect of that is? We look around and we have a really hard time determining who's a real Christian and who's not because so many people have signed a card, been baptized, put their date in the back of a date in the back of their Bible, have joined the church, or have even voted Republican. And we think, oh, these are good Christian people. And Satan is rejoicing in the fact that people really think that that was the response that Jesus was actually calling for when we see in this text that it's something totally different than that. You know what the greatest concern, though, is not just for us as we try to assess whether or not other people have truly responded to Jesus. I think our greater concern would have to be for people maybe in our own church, possibly, that haven't truly responded to Jesus. They are deceived. They really believe that they have entrusted themselves to Christ when all they have really done is followed some cleverly devised response even Satan himself. Some substitute, but not the real thing. See, the problem was not unique to Edward's day. It was not unique even to our day. And in fact, it seemed that differentiating between an appropriate response to Jesus and the popular response to Jesus started as early as the Gospel of Mark itself. As evidenced by the fact that Mark structures his Gospel in such a way so as to focus on these different responses to Jesus. Early in our sermon series, we were focusing on the identity of Christ. We saw that very clearly in the opening chapters of chapter 1. And then as we moved in halfway through chapter 1, moving into chapter 2, on into the first seven verses of chapter 3, we were seeing the authority of Jesus. That was the focus. His authority over men, his authority over disease, his authority over darkness, his authority even over the religious establishment itself. And it's here 
that the gospel has taken a new turn. Instead of focusing on identity or authority, now it focuses on response. Starting in the message last Sunday, our focus began to switch from, do we have the right Jesus, to, have we implemented the right response? That's where things are headed. That's the question we're asking. Have we implemented the right response? And in verses 7 through 35 in particular, Mark contrasts various responses to Jesus so that we could easily distinguish the appropriate response to Jesus from the popular response to him. And a careful reading of these stories will reveal four different responses, only one of which is appropriate. For the sake of review, let me give you the first two. The superficiality of the crowds. We covered that last week in verses 7 through 12. That's one of the responses. And we saw that there's a difference between being a part of the crowd and being committed to Christ. It's very clear when you read the first three chapters. The second response was the submission of the disciples. We began that point last week, and we're going to finish it this week. So we've got the superficiality of the crowds, or the self-interest of the crowds, the submission of the disciples. We'll see that in verses 13 through 19. If you're taking notes, I'll go ahead and give you the third response, and that's the sympathy of his family. We're going to look at the sympathy of his family, and again, you may want to pay attention here because something unique is going to take place in the text where Mark is going to talk about the sympathy of his family in verses 20 and 21. He's then going to skip over it and come back to it. I'll explain why later, but just know that that's going to happen. And then the fourth thing is the slander of the religious leaders. Those are the responses as Mark sees them. He's going to give them in story form now, and then in chapter 4, he's going to give them in picture form. He's going to tell illustrations. But now he's giving stories of the appropriate response to Jesus. So let's jump in where we left off with the second response, the submission of the disciples in verses 13 through 19. Look right at the opening. We see such a contrast here between what the last group was doing, the crowds, and what's going on in verse 13. It says, And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. Now, as we delve our way into these verses, we need to remember that there are some unique things going on in this passage and some universal things. If you are taking notes, you may want to do unique in one column and universal in another column so that you can differentiate between the two. There's something very special that's going on here, but there's also something that's very common going on here, and I'm going to jump back and forth between the two. Let me first of all give you a few of the universal applications of this text. We know that people who respond to Christ appropriately have been called by him, and they come to him. They've been called by him, and they come to him. The text has very clearly emphasized Jesus' initiation of this event. It says that he called to him those whom he desired. Actually, if you're reading it in the Greek text, it emphasizes Christ's choice. It says those whom he himself desired. <laughs> it, it's pointing out the initiative of Christ, just like 1, 16 through 20 did with Peter and James and John and Andrew. And then also, as was done later in chapter 2 with uh, Levi. It's all about Christ's initiative. He's the one that initially makes the call. And how do we know that what real disciples do, not only does Jesus call for them in a special relationship, they're different than the crowd, but he also, they also commit themselves to him. It says that they come to him. They're different from the crowd. They stand in contrast to the crowd who is only interested in self. These people are actually interested in the Savior. 
Not just what he can do for them. They leave their jobs, their occupations, and they go and they follow him. And he calls people to fellowship in order to implant his message in them so that they could also give that message out to others. That is universal. If you are a true follower of Christ, he has called you to himself. And you, in interest of Christ and Christ alone, come to him. You respond to him. But as the text proceeds, we see some unique things as well. Look at verse 14. It says, and he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles. That word apostles is very important. So that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Now I said this is unique. Notice some of the unique things that are here. There's a unique role. Apostles. It literally means sent ones. But we know as we read through the rest of the New Testament that the apostles would play a very special role in the establishment of the church. Don't be deceived by those who may be charismatic friends of ours who say that there are apostles existing today. Ephesians 2.20 makes it very clear that Jesus decided to build his church on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. It is because of the ministry of the apostles that we even have the New Testament revelation and canon of Scripture. They were doing something that was very, very unique. And if you've been in Pastor Andrew's class on the Holy Spirit, you're going to understand that even more. But not only was their role unique, they also had unique training. These men were actually with Jesus. Now, as easy as it would be for us to spiritualize this and say, like, oh, well, I'm with Jesus when I'm reading my Bible. True, you are. But you haven't actually been with Jesus. He, he hasn't physically shown up at your house and you don't talk with him. They were actually with Jesus. That is a huge part of why we know that apostolic revelation was so special because these people were eyewitnesses. They had face-to-face contact with him and they were with him. That was part of what he wanted them to do. They also had a unique mission. He sent them out to preach and they would go and they would preach and they would continue his mission. They would represent him and they also had a unique authority. They unilaterally could cast out demons as evidence to evidence the fact that their revelation was indeed from God. Not only could they cast out demons, but we would see from reading other passages of Scripture that they would have the unique capacity to speak in various languages and that they could also do certain types of healing. Modern apostles today do not have that capacity. But these unique apostles did have that. And so this was uh, very helpful for the first century church as they understand that Jesus picked these 12 men from among his followers to play a special role. But, the verse continues. He even gives their names. He thinks that's important for us. He even wants to make it clear that, look, the 12 that came from the disciples, they're not just anybody, but they're a particular group. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, verse 17. James, the son of Zebedee. John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. I like how he gave nicknames to this first three. It shows even a a sense of the humanity of Christ as he expresses some affection for some of his key leaders. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus. Simon the Zealot, and then Judas Iscariot, just church history knew, but he wants to clarify, Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. These men, and even in these verses, we see they had a unique office. It emphasizes, again, he appointed the twelve. Now, in verse 13, he's already talked about the disciples in particular as a contrast from the crowd, but then he separates, even from the disciples, the twelve. These men played a unique 
role. They had unique identities. And what I really love about it is that as church history looks back at these men, you know that they were works in progress. <laughs> That's one of the reasons why I know, by the way, to any of you who may be skeptical of the truth of Scripture, this is one of the reasons why I know that the Bible is true. Because why would it record all the faults and failures of these men? If somebody made this book up, would you include these things? The fact that someone like Peter would ultimately deny Christ three times. Or that somebody like Thomas would even doubt that he ever rose from the dead. Or that somebody like James and John on multiple occasions would fight over who would be first in his kingdom. Right after he said whoever would be last would be first in his kingdom. I mean, these are very human moments in Scripture. And we see that these men had a unique role. But let's get back to some of the universal things. While they may have played a unique role in the founding of the church, their calling and commitment in this context is exemplary of an appropriate response to Jesus in a couple of ways. I would note this as well. When you read through this entire text, you can see that they are not socially elite or religiously trained, but they were chosen by Jesus. That's something that is true of every follower of Christ. You don't have to have a religion degree. You don't have to come from a certain family or have a certain last name. The text makes it clear... That Jesus' followers, while they may not be socially elite or religiously trained, have been chosen by Jesus as evidenced by the fact that they actually follow him. I remember having a conversation with a friend of mine, and we were talking about the reality of our call to Christ and how countercultural it really is. Why in the world would anybody, think about it, why would anybody follow a man they've never seen who, in fact, died at the hands of Roman enemies, and then supposedly came back from the dead. I mean, you have no proof of this. There were no video cameras. All we have are eyewitness reports. And we respond to that, and we say that, yep, that's me. That's what I believe. This is crazy to the secular world. And yet some of us joyfully identify with that message. That is true of all of Jesus' followers. It was crazy for these men to follow Jesus, and they did. And it is crazy for us to do the same, and we do. That is one of the evidences. You are not ashamed to identify yourself with the crucified and resurrected Lord. But there's another universal application of the true follower, and that is this. Christ's followers do not follow Him perfectly. But they would spend time with Him. They would be dedicated to His purposes. They would operate under His authority. Isn't that clear about these men? We already noted their failures, and yet there's no doubt about it. The eleven in particular, the twelfth who would later be replaced by Matthias and then Paul, all dedicated themselves to Christ, His purposes, and operated under His authority. And I would say the same is true of anyone who follows Christ today. That's the difference between the crowd and the committed. The committed, even though they are imperfect, are dedicated to Christ's purposes, they operate under His authority, and they spend time with Him. I think the best picture I could give of this, at least in this day and age, it might be a little tainted, but would be the illustration of marriage. We typically understand that marriage is supposed to be a relationship characterized by commitment. That's the difference between being married. That's why some people don't want to be married because they don't like the idea of being committed to one person. And yet we understand that marriage inherently is a relationship of commitment. I love being married to my wife. She's a beautiful, godly, patient woman. If you knew me well, not just on Sunday. You would know that that's the case. And as great as it is to be married to her, uh, the 
I am indebted to her. I am committed to her, even though that our relationship isn't always perfect, even though we have our own faults and failures, and yes, that's true in preachers' homes as well. (laughs) The relationship that we have is one that's characterized by commitment. Not perfection, but commitment. I think you could say the same is true of you. That's what a marriage relationship is. And marriage is not just a past event, but it is a present reality. And in a similar way, what this text is showing us, that a relationship with Christ is not just a past event, but it is a present reality. It is an ongoing expression of commitment. Was there an entry point? Yes. But how do you know whether or not you're a follower of Christ? You know because you are committed to Him and His purposes. I mean, as we consider our commitment to Jesus, I think we need to be careful to not buy into two major myths that exist out there today. The first myth that I would warn you of would be the uncommitted Christ follower. I have no idea where we got this terminology from, but for some reason we have sold ourselves on thinking that someone can be a follower of Christ without actually following Christ. That's that's an oxymoron. If you, if you don't follow Christ, you're not following Christ. Do you understand that? Do you know what the word Christian literally means? It means little Christ. You can't say that you're a Christian if you're not a little Christ. Now, again, not a perfect representation of Christ, but a little Christ. You can't say that you're a disciple or that you're a follower of Jesus Christ if you're not actually following Jesus Christ. That's why Mark, no, excuse me, Matthew would say, or record Jesus saying, if anyone would come after me, Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Now notice this. We have a whole generation of people who have tried to make a passage like Matthew 16, 24-26 like the next level of Christianity. Like if you really want to be serious about your relationship with Jesus, you're going to be a disciple and you're going to follow Him and you're going to take up your cross and you're going to follow Him. But did you notice when you read that text that there are eternal consequences at play here? This isn't just if you want to be a better Christian or if you want to take it to the next level. Everybody who follows Christ, everybody who will be with Him eternally has taken up their cross, denied themselves, and followed Jesus. That's what the text says. So, let's dispel the myth. There is no such thing as an uncommitted Christian. That being said, there's another myth that exists as well. And I would call this the unchallenged Christ follower. There's the uncommitted Christ follower, but there's another myth. It's not as prominent, but it does exist where some people think that, you know what? If you're a true Christian, you're not going to struggle with anything. You're going to have victory over everything. Uh, Your life's just going to be great and fine and dandy. But we know that Christians struggle. As I taught in Circle Back this past Wednesday, I kept trying to use two phrases. I said, commitment is not the same thing as completion, and submission is not the same thing as perfection. Aren't you grateful for passages like 1 John 1, 8-10, through 10, that say if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness? And then it adds, if we say that we have not sinned, 
We make him a liar and the truth of God is not in us? Don't misunderstand me this morning. I am not saying that commitment to Christ means that you do it perfectly. The lives of these men make that very clear. We struggle. We battle. But overall, somebody could look at us and say, he or her is committed to him. What does this mean for us? Well, I would only remind you that a text like this provokes us to ask a simple question. And by extension, by the way, it invites us to ask this question about those whom we love. Here's the question. Are you committed to, submitted to, Jesus? Simple question. If you want to examine your heart, you ask, are you committed to Him? The disciples, they characterize that by spending time with Him. Do you spend time with Him? Do you read the Word? Do you pray? Do you engage with believers at church? Are you committed to His mission? Do you want to accomplish what He wants to accomplish? Seeking to speak the Gospel. Serving other believers in the church. Giving sacrificially of your own resources so as to continue the mission of Jesus. See, if you or someone you love claims to have responded to Jesus, but they don't think that Jesus is worthy enough to spend time with, or they don't think that His mission is worth following, they have not responded to Jesus. Don't be deceived. So, we've seen two responses to Jesus so far. The self-interest of the crowds, the submission of the disciples, and then we're going to see the sympathy of His family in verses 20 and 21. Now, this is a scandalous text. Again, another proof, by the way, that the Bible is truly the inspired Word of God and not just something that was written by men. Because again, if I'm writing it, I'm not including verses 20 and 21. Look at it. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again. We see that the crowd, by the way, is also not regarding Jesus' physical well-being. As evidenced by the fact that they could not even eat. He's hungry. He wants to eat. And they... They won't even let him go eat. And then verse 21 is the one that's just so outrageous. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he is out of his mind. Now get the picture of what's going on here. The context we see that he went to a home. Some of you may have a translation that says he went to his home. We know that Jesus didn't have a home. In the Greek text, there is no definite article before the word home. It's just a home. He went into a house. He went into a home, probably his home base at Capernaum, and the crowd is pressing around him to such a point, this mob mentality, you remember we were describing that last week, that he can't even get physical nourishment. And it seems like the way that this is portrayed with this, this wasn't just a one-time instance, but this was an ongoing event. It was a regular thing for him to want to go eat, and then people not to allow him of this, so much so that word had made its way back to Nazareth, where Jesus was actually from and where his family was. And they were like, he's going to kill himself. If If he doesn't get away from these crowds, he's not even going to be able to live if he's not eating. I mean, it's just a natural, parental familial concern for Jesus. But notice their response to him. It's intriguing. intriguing. They think that he's crazy. He has lost his mind. So much so that they have the intent to go and seize him. It means to forcibly arrest. Can you imagine, in our terms, a straitjacket? They want him subdued because they think he's going to harm himself. 
This is Jesus' family. This is Mary. Like on the Christmas cards, Mary. She's the one that thinks that he's crazy. It's his brothers that think that he's crazy. And Mark prepares us here for this this really powerful point that despite the purest of motives and the closest of human relationships, you can still be wrong about Jesus. Did you hear me? Despite the purest of motives and the closest of human relationships, you can still be wrong about Jesus. See, Mark is preparing us for something. He's preparing us to consider that those closest to Jesus may indeed oppose Him, and that proximity to Jesus, even blood relationship, is no substitute for commitment to Him in faith and following Him. Now, this segment here, I told you that I needed to explain this. These two verses is the first example, are the first example of this technique that is pretty unique to Mark called sandwiching. That's the uh, layman's term. If you want to use the fancy grammatical term, it's called intercalation. Where you'll take a passage, a story, one story that's together, you cut it in half, and then you interject another story right in the middle of it because you want to show the similarity between the two stories. We actually even do this in movies some today. So you've got to notice what's going on here. Mark is going to try to show that the, the sympathetic error of his family is the same. The slanderous rejection of the Pharisees. Let's continue reading to see this. Look at the slander of the religious leaders. We'll come back to the sympathy of his family. Verses 22 through 30. And let's just note, right at the beginning of verse 22, and to note this relationship between the two, for those of you who are more grammatically and literarily sensitive, look at the end of verse 21, and then look at verse 22, and see if you can see the similarity with how these are structured. I'll read the two together. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying he is possessed by Beelzebul. You notice how they're kind of phrased the same way. It's, it's putting them right together, right against one another. And this, this summary is so unique. Notice the source of this charge. Who is it? It's the scribes. Now, he's been debating the scribes throughout the book of Mark so far, but did you notice where these scribes came from? It says, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem. Now, by the way, for those of you who are familiar with the map of Jerusalem, technically, Galilee, where he is, is up. But, geographically or topographically, Jerusalem is the higher elevation. So they went down to Jerusalem. That's why you'll see that a lot of times in Scripture. Some people will try to point to that and say, well, look, they didn't even know what was up and down. They knew exactly what was up and down. For them, Jerusalem was such an important city. This was the capital of the religious world in their eyes. To go anywhere else wasn't just a move down in altitude, but it was a move down. They came down from Jerusalem to confront Jesus. So these aren't just any scribes. This is the religious elite. This is the establishment. They're coming from headquarters, if you will. And they have already cooked up a charge. The charge in particular is that they can't deny, by the way, they can't deny that He's doing the miracles. They can't deny that He is casting out demons. 
They don't say it doesn't happen, but they say it has a different source. And they said, you know what? The only way somebody could do this kind of powerful stuff is to be possessed by Satan himself. And the verb there is actually the imperfect tense, which means it was past tense, continual action. This wasn't just something they said one time. This was their message. This was their program. This is their party platform. Yes, Jesus is doing miracles, but we want you to know that more than anything, he is accomplishing these things by the power of Satan himself. Now, notice Jesus' rejection of the religious authorities. They reject him, but then he rejects them. Look at verses 23 through 26. Notice his logic. And he called to them and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. Now, we're going to find out more about parables next week, but for now, I would just show you these are little stories that are going to refute their logic. It's really bad logic. You ever just meet people that just don't make sense when they talk? What they're saying here just does not make sense, and Jesus points it out very clearly with a couple of stories. And you know what? The stories don't require a 10-minute explanation. It's very simple. The first one is of two kingdoms fighting against one another. And then all of a sudden, if one of the kingdoms starts fighting against itself, what's going to happen to that kingdom? It's going to collapse. It's not going to exist anymore. Now, this is actually the same verse that Lincoln would use later on in the Gettysburg Address, talking about a house divided. He was saying, look, the same thing is going to happen. If we fight against one another, we're not even going to exist anymore. So, this is the logic. Whether it's two households or whether it's two kingdoms fighting against one another, the fact that they're fighting against one another is a very good thing. So, it doesn't matter what these scribes thought. As long as Jesus, I mean, as long as the kingdom of Satan is collapsing, they have nothing to argue about. But there's a better explanation. It wouldn't make sense for Satan and his kingdom to fight against itself. That would just be self-suicide. Why would Satan, to use this term, commit suicide? It is... That's the the illogical part of this. Why would Satan destroy his own kingdom? So Jesus offers a better explanation in verse 27. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. So here's the parable detailing Jesus' power. The other one refutes their logic, but here's the one that just says, look, here's what's really going on, guys. If you're upset by the fact that Satan's kingdom seems to be crumbling and you think that he's doing it, I've got a better explanation for you. Maybe somebody's broken into Satan's house, they've tied him up as the strong man, and someone even stronger has tied him up, and he's the one that's plundering his goods. The parable is an allegory. The strong one is Satan. His house is his domain, this present world which he seeks to hold and secure. The vessels that are mentioned here are his hapless victims, whom he has taken captive. The stronger one is Jesus, who has come from God and invaded Satan's stronghold and has bound him. Here's the point. Someone stronger is dismantling Satan's kingdom. That's all it is. Look, guys, what you're saying doesn't make sense. Let me tell you what does make sense. Someone stronger than Satan himself has shown up on the scene and has begun to clean house. And I am that stronger one. That's the better explanation. But notice he doesn't stop there.
goes on to one of the most scary and difficult passages in all the Bible. Verses 28 through 30. Truly I say to you all, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. And then notice the explanation in verse 34. They were saying he has an unclean spirit. Now notice his pronouncement of their eternal destiny. He says that you gentlemen will have no forgiveness. You have committed an eternal sin. Now one of the things, before you start trying to apply this, okay, we have to understand what it meant before we understand what it means. Before you start applying this to your situation today, we need to put ourselves back in time to this first century context and get what was going on here. What was going on, what they could see with their own eyes, what they heard with their own ears, what they experienced firsthand in their own lives was so obvious to the original readers. There is no denying that if demons are leaving people and that people who are lame and deaf and mute and blind are being healed, God is on the scene. There is just no denying that. Again, that's why I'm always trying to distance. I'm not trying to pick on charismatic or Pentecostal people, but I want to distance what's taking place in crusades today versus what's taking place in the original audience. This is something that was undeniable. This wasn't just a backache that was being relieved or somebody's swimmer's ear being fixed. This is huge. It's undeniable. There is no denying that God has shown up and He is dismantling the kingdom of Satan in the power of the Holy Spirit through the person of Jesus Christ. That's it. And despite how clear and obvious that was, these men had the audacity to believe and to preach that what was undeniably from God was actually coming from none other than Satan himself. This is huge. The term in question here is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Let's take it a phrase at a time to help us understand what it is. The term blasphemy, just blasphemy, it just means defaming, disrespecting, or slandering God. This same word is used in Romans 3.8, 1 Corinthians 10.30, and Mark 7.22 to describe the way somebody would slander someone else. This is the, uh, the sin of teenage girls in particular. To slander another, to talk bad about them, to run them down behind their back, right? Take that same idea and now apply that to God. To talk bad about Him, to run Him down. Okay? That's slander. Now, that's almost unthinkable, but people do it. People do it today. They blaspheme God. And notice, he doesn't just say blasphemy is an unpardonable sin. He says that it is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Literally, defaming, disrespecting, or slandering the Holy Spirit. That's what the words mean, okay? That's what the words mean. But those words, follow me here, those words exist in a context. Okay, you can't just look up something in a dictionary to understand what someone means. You have to follow the context. 
So we have blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So strictly speaking, that means running down the Holy Spirit, talking bad about Him. But notice how it's defined here by Jesus. You have to see the context or you will totally misunderstand this thing. Look at verse 22 and then look at verse 30 and notice how the author has chosen to start and end this section. He starts it with this. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying he is possessed by Beelzebul and by the prince of demons he cast out demons. And then notice verse 30. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Why does he accuse them of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Because he was doing undeniable miracles in, the, in his own person by the Holy Spirit, and they were saying that those things were from Satan himself. So, what do I mean, uh, how would we define then more modernly what the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is? It's resolution in one's heart that the undeniable, supernatural work of Jesus is empowered by Satan himself, and then someone who propagates that to other people. Now, I know you probably want to write that down. Good luck. I'm not repeating it. But if you come back on Wednesday, I will repeat it. I don't want to digress too much into this because it's not the point of the passage. The point is that the religious leaders of all people were rejecting Jesus, and he rejected the religious leaders in the strongest of terms. I will say this for your relief. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, I'll tell you what it's not. It's not just big sins. It's not adultery. It's not just blasphemy. It's not suicide. It's not even just persistent unbelief, sin unto death, apostasy. I'll, I'll talk about those things on Wednesday. But know this, it is something that is special and unique to that historical situation. Ultimately, I'm going to give you my interpretive summary of this, and we need to move on. I would say this on the basis of the understanding of this text and what was going on in that situation, I do not believe that the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit can be committed today because Jesus is not currently physically present here and doing those same works. Other people disagree with me. But I will say this. If it could be committed, you would not be concerned about forgiveness from God if you thought Jesus was Satan. That's ultimately where the people on the other side of this position from me would say. They would say, oh, well, it's just continual denial of Christ. Well, look, I wouldn't say that technically that's accurate, but practically it is. If you think that Jesus himself is Satan, you're not going to be concerned about getting forgiveness from him. Does that make sense to you? So for those of you who have more tender consciences here this morning, I want you to understand that this is not the point of this text, and this is not even a reality for you. I don't think that anyone here in this room has seen an undeniable act of Jesus in person and called it satanic and then preached it to other people. I just haven't seen it happen. But I will say this. The point is, I don't care how religious you are, but you reject the provision that Jesus offers you might as well have committed the unpardonable sin. There is no forgiveness for you. A few years ago, I came across an article in Newsweek titled, The Blasphemy Challenge. Maybe you've seen this before. The Blasphemy Challenge originated from two prominent atheists who wanted to encourage atheists, quote, to come forward and put their souls on the line, showing others that you don't have to be afraid of God. To participate in the challenge, one would simply upload a video of themselves stating their name and then using these words, I deny the existence of the Holy Spirit and you should too. Some of the videos were only 10 to 15 seconds long. 
Some of them would go on to two to five minute little diatribes on why they didn't believe in God. The evangelical consensus at the time, because they were interviewing all kinds of people once this thing started catching fire, was this. Um, look, no, you can't commit the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Jesus isn't here. You can't undeniably put, take a work of Jesus and attribute it to Satan if Jesus isn't here. The, the response that I just gave you. And one of the men responded to that response. This is one of the atheists. He says this. He says, I know exactly what I'm doing. I'm daring God to send me to hell. He says, what we're trying to do here is we want to show that we really mean it when we say we don't believe a word in this book. Now, while you would expect this kind of outright rejection from a modern atheist, the account in Mark reminds us that such insistent rejections can occur from the least likely sources. It wasn't the atheist agnostic movement in Jerusalem that had rejected Jesus. It was the religious elite themselves. That's the point of this text, that even the religious could reject Jesus outright in this way. The bigger point here is that the rejection of Jesus is a rejection of eternal forgiveness regardless of your education or your religious background. You hear me? That's the point. Here's the point. The rejection of Jesus is a rejection of eternal forgiveness, regardless of your religious training or background. Here's what this text opens us up to. Here's the newsflash for all of you today. Religious people reject Jesus too. They reject the only source of salvation as well. It isn't just the crowds and the people that are out there, but people in churches, people who went to seminary, people who went to Bible colleges, people who claim to be religious and denominationally affiliated. These people reject Jesus too. If you're here, you're visiting today, maybe you have a religious background. Here's the deal. If you do not repent of your self-rule, and your self-righteousness, and depend on Jesus the King alone, you have not responded to Jesus regardless of your religious background. That's what I'm saying. Jesus plus repentant faith equals salvation. Your religion, as you would vote in a census, is, has nothing to do with it. And may I say this also for those of you who are here at Faith Bible Church and you're like, no, I have not rejected Christ. Yes, I have received Him. I know that He's the only way to salvation. I don't, I'm not going to spurn His offer for forgiveness. Look, this passage isn't just for the religiously hard-hearted. It's showing members of Faith Bible Church the vast difference between an appropriate response to Jesus and a religiously veneered one. Do you understand what I mean by that? You need to know this about the people that you love. Religious labels mean nothing in assessing an appropriate response to Jesus. I think sometimes we get in a conversation with people and somebody happens to drop the fact that they, went to a, they go to a particular church or that I'm a Christian, and then we think, whew, and now I don't have to present the gospel to him. And what I'm trying to tell you this morning is that that means nothing for you. It means nothing for me. Who cares if they go to church? Who cares if they claim to be a Christian? What do they mean by that? That's the question we need to get to. So in our efforts to evangelize, we can't let just simple religious speak 
deceive us into just assuming that someone's a true Christian. Don't let someone's claim to church attendance or baptism or their bumper stickers or their Christian t-shirts put you at ease regarding the state of their soul. Religious people reject Jesus too. That's what the passage is all about. So up to this point, we've fully examined three different responses to Jesus. The superficiality of the crowds, the submission of the disciples, the slander of the religious, and then lastly, the, we're going to go back to the sympathy of his family. Let's close out with verses 31 to 35. We saw that his family was on his way to save him from himself. They didn't believe he was who he said he was. And even though they weren't outright against him, they were for him. They had well intentions about him. But what happens here is so shocking because not only is what they believe shocking, but what Jesus says about the family is shocking. Can, can I give you a time out before we read the text? Maybe some cultural insight that you just don't think of that much. For us, um, we think of family in rather loose terms. It's just our culture. I mean, I few years ago, it was six years ago, my wife was just reminding me this morning, it was six years ago that I left North Carolina, Pitt County, North Carolina, to go to Los Angeles, California, and nobody really had a problem with it, except, admittedly, my parents didn't like the fact that I was taking the grandkids away, to be fair. But it wasn't shocking or scandalous, people leave home all the time. They leave and they go and they, they go to college or they go off and get a new job and then they come back at Christmas and Thanksgiving and July 4th, it's not a big deal. But you know what happened in first century culture? You went back to the family. That interesting passage in John chapter 14 where Jesus talks about building mansions, the way it's translated in King James, is actually building rooms. What would happen when you would go and get married, you would go get the bride from the father's house and you would take it back to your house and you would build it onto your dad's house. Everybody lived in the same house. I'll put it this way. In first century culture, your last name was more important than your first name. For us, our first name is more important than our last name. Family was a big deal. And with that in mind, think about what Jesus says here. And his mother, verse 31, and his brothers came to him, and standing outside they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now do you see the strategic location of this? Jesus has already, or Mark, excuse me, has already put rejection of Jesus, whether it be slanderous or sympathetic, rejection of responding to Jesus with anything other than commitment on the same level. But now he's going to clarify a positive response. In the last half of the story, these people had finally made it to Capernaum, presumably, from Nazareth to accomplish their mission, but they can't even get into the house. And through this interchange, you're going to notice, when you read carefully, this difference between who's on the inside and who's on the outside. Let me point it out for you. Look at verse 31. The family's on the outside, and they cannot even speak to him. I mean, this is his biological family. They're calling for him. They're looking for him. And again, they've opposed the will of God without even realizing it. But they are the outsiders in this picture. Look at verse 32, the first part. His circle of followers. The, it's notice here, by the way, it's a crowd and not the crowd. 
Anytime you see the crowd in Mark, it's something bad. When you see a crowd, it's just talking about a crowd of people. Jesus has a crowd around him on the inside. You look at the second half of verse 32, and Jesus mentions his family, or the crowd mentions Jesus' family being on the outside. So we've got outside, inside, outside. And then in verses 33 to 35, Jesus finally clarifies who is really on the inside. Who is really on the inside? Who is Jesus' true family? He asks a question in verse 33. Who are my mother and my brothers? And then notice this. It's just crazy the way this happens in verse 34. And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. He's talking to the people who are sitting at his feet, listening to his teaching. And then it's fully clarified in verse 35. He doesn't hold mince any words here. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Wow. You notice that? You want to know who the insiders are here? You want another picture of an appropriate response to Jesus? Not just the disciples, but he gives another picture here of an appropriate response to Jesus. The person who does the will of God. That's the condition. And that's scary, comforting. What do we mean by the will of God? What would those people have thought about when they heard the term will of God? It specifically, what would Mark's original readers have thought of when they heard the will of God? Well, you'll notice that through this epistle, we haven't had any explicit commands so far. It's been story, 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 except for chapter 1. Verses 14 and 15. The summary of Jesus' mission that we're supposed to keep in mind as we read through the entire book summarizes for us the will of God so far. And what is the response to the will of God? It is this repentance and believing the gospel. That isn't my evangelically contrived words. That is the words of Mark himself. So far, the only record that we have of the will of God in the book of Mark is repent and believe the gospel. So who's really a part of the family of God? There are people who repent of self-rule and believe in the good news that Jesus has come as the long-promised King. That was the immediate entry point, but that was also the ongoing commitment as we clarified further. And the consequence of this is beautiful. It says that those who are committed to God, those who have repented and placed their faith in Christ, and those who are committed to Him, they are a part of a new family. Don't let this scare you about your current family relationships. The emphasis is really a positive one. Note even how he says it in verse 30, or excuse me, in verse 35. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Do you notice what family members not mentioned here? Father. (laughs) There's no mention of father because we all have the same father who have repented and believed in Christ. And do you notice something else that's mentioned here that's not typically mentioned in first century documents, especially those dealing with religion? Sisters. Even though Jesus' brothers were the ones on the outside, he even adds the word sisters so that people would understand in the first century church that women were just as much a part of the faith community as anyone else. This was unheard of in that century. And yet Jesus includes us into a new family. Everybody, no one's left out. Whoever is doing the will of God, 
I mentioned leaving North Carolina a few years ago. I've got to be honest with you. I miss my family from North Carolina. We, we even went back a couple weeks ago to see my granddad. Some of you know that. Um, some people have horrible family backgrounds. Some people have mediocre ones. Even though I grew up in a split home, I think I had a great family background. I'm, I'm pretty proud of it. I'm, I love the community that we had. We had dinner together every other Sunday. I'm talking about the whole family getting together after church. I mean, homemade kind of stuff. We served in the same church together. We all went to the same church up till I was 18 years old and went to Bible college. We would go to the river every other weekend, do just like the kids did yesterday for Lake Day. We did that every other weekend. Multiple boats, Ant's Place at the river. I mean, it was an awesome experience. We worked hard together. Again, it was two generations of Brick Mason at the time. And when I was in my teen years, I was working with my dad every summer. There was just a lot of commonality about hard work. I mean, obviously, politically, religiously, we're just all on the same page. And, and it, was, it was special. I think it was special. I enjoyed it. I miss it. We valued the same things. We struggled through the same things. We spent time together. And it's strange to me to think that so much joy came from just sharing the last same last name. Isn't that weird? Yet in my travels over these last eight years, as I went 2,700 miles from Greenville to Los Angeles and then 3,000 miles from Los Angeles to D.C., and now from D.C. to Naples, has taught me something else as well. Or I would say this, is teaching me something else. But as sweet as it was to be part of a physical family, it is all the more sweet to be a part of the family of God. It doesn't matter where I go. I have brothers, sisters, and mothers. I've seen that firsthand. If I never would have left North Carolina, I would have never known how sweet it is to have to depend upon the family of Christ followers. And you know what this text does? It encourages us. These first century believers, they were literally conducting funerals when they would convert to Christianity. They were being excluded from their family. And how awesome was it for them to understand and realize and know from the lips of the Lord Jesus Himself that they are a part of the family of God when they submit to Him. This is good news. Submission. Not your last name. Not your religious background. Not where you were born. Not where you go to church. Submission to Christ is the indication that we have truly responded to Jesus and that we really belong. It's almost like when I meet some of you, and especially when we have new people join the church, my immediate thought is, oh, you want God's will too? Oh, you've responded to repentance in repentance and faith too? Oh, you're committed to spending time with Christ and doing His work too? Great! It's awesome! Brother, sister, we're so glad to have you. If you understand this text fully, it's not hard to feel the positive and negative realities of this truth. I mean, positively, I've been kind of describing those in the last few moments. But let me state it as plainly as I can. If you've submitted to God and you've trusted in Jesus, you've turned from your sin, you have responded appropriately to Him. Don't worry about that. And good, something good has come from that. You are a part of the inner circle of Christ's followers. 
You're, you're not needing to be on another level. You're a part of His family. You're a part of the greater family of faith. But I would be remiss if I did not mention the negative side of this. If I did not provide a little bit of a warning for you who may be visiting with us today. Just as religion does not ensure a relationship with Jesus, so also a blood relationship with others who have a relationship with Jesus does not ensure a relationship with Jesus. The simple way I heard it growing up was God has no grandchildren. Responding to Jesus is a personal, not a family affair. You may look around and you may think or thank God for your religious grandparents and your religious parents and your religious family, but if you have not responded by submitting yourself to Christ, You haven't responded. You're not a part of the inner circle. You're not a part of the family of God. I mean, just think with me for a moment. Just, just use some logic. Initially, Jesus' own blood relatives proved themselves to be outside His true family. They had the same blood in many ways that Jesus had. Just oh, the human dynamic. They didn't share the same father, obviously, but I mean, there's some shared DNA there, and they weren't a part of the family. How much more so is that true of us? Because this can seem so shocking, I want to support it with another text from Scripture. Matthew chapter 7. Please turn with me there. Matthew 7, 21-23. The question for us, if we want to know if we're really a part of the family of God, isn't what our family members do or say, but have we ourselves submitted to God? And Jesus makes this exceedingly clear in the Sermon on the Mount. And Again, it's kind of another scary passage. But we have to be clear in our response to Jesus. Look at verse 21 of Matthew chapter 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Notice that. Not everyone who says, not everyone who speaks with their mouth, Lord, Lord, the, the word could be master, master, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who what? Does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Look at verse 22. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons and in your name do many mighty works in your name? So they even did like good things, awesome things. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Maybe your translation says iniquity. The literal word there is lawlessness. One who would not be ruled. You know, if that passage ever scares you, it shouldn't if you're one who's willing to be ruled by Jesus. But if you refuse to submit to His rule, it should scare you. That's the one who's been deceived according to Matthew 7. That's the one who has not responded to Jesus according to Mark chapter 3. The one who has responded is the one who has submitted Here's the will of God. Believe the Gospel because Jesus is indeed the better King that we sang about earlier. He not only died to satisfy God's wrath for your sin, but He lives so that you could have the power to live that life. And this will change your heart, your direction for Him. It's all about the Gospel. And may I just give a little note here to those of you who are parents with children at home, or maybe you're a child. Still at home. 
All right, you know what? We're all a parent or a child of some kind, so this is for everybody. Just because you share the same last name with someone doesn't mean you share Christ's name. Now, that's true for that. This is specifically concerning for two people one for parents. You need to know this about your kids. Don't just assume that they're Christians because they're in your home, because they go to church. They probably go to church because you make them. We need to be evangelizing our children. The same thing, we also, kids, if you're here, you need to know this about your parents. They may be good, godly people. They may be submitted to the will of God. But if you haven't submitted to the will of God, you are not a Christian. By the way, may I add that this is why we don't baptize babies here at this church? That's why we don't do it. Well, first, because the Bible says that we should only baptize believers. But the danger of many evangelical churches who would say that, you know, we're going to baptize our kids just so they can realize that they're a part of the covenant family of God. Now, they don't believe it saves them, but they believe it makes them a part of the special covenant family. It's deceiving. I don't want my kid to think that they're really a Christian if they haven't submitted to Christ. We're not going to do that. We're blessed. For those of you who are growing up in Christian homes, you're blessed to be in a Christian home. There's a special honor that takes place and a special privilege of coming and growing up in a Christian home. 1 Corinthians 7 will tell us, but it does not get you closer to God. Only your submission to Christ, your faith and trust in Him alone makes you a Christian. A missionary friend of mine by the name of Max Stiles, I met him a few months ago, he tells the story in one of his books of a time that he went to go hear James McPherson. He's a Pulitzer Prize winning historian. And the lecture in particular was going to be on uh, naval battles during the Civil War. Now for some of us, that seems really interesting. For some of you, you're thinking, snooze alert. I don't know why anybody would pay money to listen to a lecture on Civil War naval history. But despite your reservations, the place was packed. He even rented out, I mean, the lecture actually took place at a large synagogue in the area of all places. And the place was buzzing with excitement. Everybody wanted to hear this brilliant mind from Princeton. And the lecture was proceeding very well, swimmingly. We could even use the word. Everybody was engaged. They were listening, and McPherson just had this dry wit and this resonating voice, an interesting topic to them, and it was just a great event until halfway through the lecture, the fire alarm began to blare from the electronic horns along with the strobe lights flashing at irregular intervals. You've been in that situation? And Mac, my friend, recalls that no one, not even Dr. McPherson, moved. He said that apart from like some general head turns and some just whispering among the people, everybody just sat there for like 60 seconds. Nothing's happening. Some smiling, some confused, some reassured that this was probably just an accident, some kind of scared but not really knowing where to go or what to do. Everyone's sitting there except for this one guy. Stands up. He calmly walks to the exit. And he leaves the building. Now, in light of the immobile masses of people and the, the wailing of the alarm, no one probably noticed him, but Max saw him go out. And the story ends with McPherson resuming his lecture and just continuing where he left off. Indeed, it was a false alarm. But if it was real, 
And if this story was a parable of an appropriate response to Jesus, there was only one convert in the room that evening. There was only one true believer. Some might have thought that there was a fire, but didn't really believe it enough to walk out. We have not responded appropriately to Jesus unless we repent, place genuine faith in Him, and follow Him. That's the right response to the Gospel. This is what this text is about. We've looked at four responses. There's a superficial crowd. There's slanderous religious leaders. There's sympathetic family members. But then, standing out awkwardly in that group, are the submissive disciples. This is the only way to respond. If I were to put this in different words, I would say that the clamoring of the crowds and the confusion of the family and the contradiction of the religious leaders has all been contrasted with the commitment of the called. They're committed to His mission, submitted to His rule. This is the only way we can respond to Jesus. This is the truth of this text. Here's the action for us all today. We need to be brutally honest with ourselves and with others. With ourselves and with others. I would say this for those of you who have not yet been honest with yourselves. I would just plead with you. Take a few moments this afternoon. Examine your heart and ask yourself, am I committed, submitted to Christ? You know, I would even say this. Since this response was so evident to to one another, like it was just really clear to those who were in this originally reading this, it may be a helpful thing for you to ask someone else. Look, if you are having doubts about whether or not you've really responded to Jesus, why don't you ask somebody who has responded to Jesus? Somebody that you think, you know, this is crystal clear. This guy, he submitted to Christ. This woman, she's committed to Christ. Why don't you ask them to work with you to help you examine whether or not you've really followed him? Whether or not you've really appropriately responded to him? You know what, I would even offer this. There are even some good books out there that you could go through with someone else. One of them I would recommend to you, Is It Real? by John MacArthur. It's a great little book on whether or not you've really responded to Jesus. And another one from my other mentor, Mark Dever. Am I really a Christian? Order a book like that and just get together with somebody and then just ask yourselves the questions that are in there. Look at the passages and, and find out if you've really responded to Him. That's, that's my concern for you. That's our concern as, as pastors for this flock, for you who would visit here today. And for those of you who are Christians, I pray you'd be comforted by this. This passage isn't calling you to the next level. It's helping you understand that your simple response of faith and repentance has already got you to whatever level you need. You're a part of the family of God. You're in His will. You're one of His followers. This is good news. But may I warn you, please don't grow complacent over that good news. You must, we must, be honest with others who have not responded to Christ. May we take no comfort in superficial sentimentality and family upbringing and religious affiliation. And we need to make sure that the people we love know the goodness of Jesus' reign and the appropriate response to it. That's the kind of talks that we may need to plan with others. Maybe we need to get one of those books that I just mentioned and give it to someone else and offer to meet with them about it. There's only one response to Jesus. Submit to Him. Trust in Him. 
Rely upon Him. Let's pray together. Father, You have seen the events of these last two Sundays if we've disclosed this truth. I pray that it would be real for us. For all who are here, that they would have appropriately responded to Jesus. If you are working in someone's heart today, if they are convicted of their sin, please give them the courage, the boldness to examine their lives or even to examine their lives with someone else so that they would truly believe and come to you today. Keep us as believers from being deceived of others. Give us insight, perception, so that we can powerfully and effectively share the gospel. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.